Alright, hey, welcome to Adventures Among Ideas. So, more about behaviorism today, everyone's favorite topic. Oh, I know, well, I'm hoping to uh, get back into some uh, cultural and literary issues soon, but I am desperately trying to finish uh, an article that I'm working on, or finish revising an article I'm working on about behaviorism, so it's a lot on my mind recently, so I'm going to talk about it again. Uh, but I want to say something today about the varieties of behaviorism and what all the uh, what all the different behaviorisms have in common. I think the average person, when they think about behaviorism, thinks of uh, it, thinks of it in kind of a caricatured way as a guy in a white coat who goes around telling you that you don't have a mind, something like that, and. Uh, as is usually the case, things are a bit more complex than that. And just as we uh, speak of many romanticisms, I think I've talked about this in other videos, other uh, episodes. Uh, when you look at the so when you're looking at the 19th century, we talk about, um, or at least some people like to talk about many romanticisms, the different romanticisms. So like just like that, we can speak of many behaviorisms when we're looking at the uh, 20th century and maybe even into the late 19th century, but mostly 20th century. Uh, so in a sense, there have been as many behaviorisms as behaviorists, since each behaviorist, at least um, each major behaviorist, has their own distinctive version of behaviorism. So there's uh, Watsonian behaviorism. You've got your uh, radical behaviorism related to, uh, connected with B.F. Skinner. You've got um, Cantor's interbehaviorism. You've got Tolman's purposive behaviorism, and so on and so on. Uh, but is there some common core that ties all these different behaviorisms together? Is there some overlapping similarity, something that uh, relates them all, connects them all in some way, some common idea? Well, uh, sort of. <laughs> uh, so when Morse Peckham, one way to think about it is that, um, so when Morse Peckham, who I've talked about a bunch, uh, when he tried to understand the unity, or if there was a unity behind the diversity of romanticisms, um, he looked at the historical situation that people were responding to in the late 18th and early 19th century. And I think we need to do the same thing with behaviorism. So you can't, uh, is uh, maybe difficult and sometimes impossible to say what one of these isms actually are, but you can say what the situation is that that ism is a response to. So to understand the uni unified diversity, the unity and the diversity of behaviorisms, we need to look at the historical situation in which behaviorism emerged. And what were the people that we now call behaviorists, what were they responding to in their environment? to speak behavioristically about behaviorists. So I would say that most immediately this, um, this situation is the situation of the success of modern science, um, especially the physical sciences, the biological sciences. Uh, so the success of these sciences and of trying to make psychology scientific in this uh, modern kind of sense. So science in this modern sense relies on having multiple investigators observing the same phenomenon. And a scientific experiment needs to be repeatable, for example, by other people. And for this to happen, everything needs to be open to scrutiny by other people. So the power of science really is that it's public. 
at least public within the community of scientists. Uh, it's based on um, what I like to call the show me principle, um, which is kind of an American expression. Uh, but don't just tell me, right? Don't just tell me about it. You've got to show me or at least tell me how I can see it for myself. Uh, whatever you want to assert to be true, whatever kind of assertion you make, it needs to be open in some way to verification or refutation by other people, maybe depending on what your uh, theory of evidence is. Um, but psychological phenomena are a kind of a problem in this respect. Psychological phenomena have not been classically understood to be observable except by the person having them. So as Locke, John Locke wrote in the 17th century, other people's minds are invisible to us. And if other people's minds are invisible to us, if I can't observe your mind and you can't observe my mind, then how can they be objects of science, right? That goes against the model of uh, modern science. Well, the problem can uh, maybe be put more exactly in this way. So mental terms such as mind, consciousness, uh, sensation, thought, perception, these kinds of things were understood by the time of modern science to refer to phenomena that were only observable by uh, one person. So they were observable through something called introspection. This is an old idea, but uh, the concept of introspection that we rely on today probably has you could say it has roots in Descartes and uh, was adopted in uh, modern psychology Locke has kind of a version of this and it gets transmitted up until today really um, filtered through various other developments but this other uh, idea of introspection is that you can kind of uh, observe what's going on in your own mind uh, and the mental phenomena that were observed in introspection and which seemed not to take up any space uh, were perhaps made out of, so people thought maybe these were made out of, these mental phenomena were made out of diff a different kind of substance than ordinary public objects like uh, rocks and tables and chairs and organic body, animal bodies and stuff. Um, so however, through a through uh although these were maybe made of a special non-spatial substance uh, these mental phenomena still appeared to have some kind of causal role in the physical world this was the confusing thing about the mind is it seemed to be non-physical and yet it had some kind of physical effect maybe kind of sort of it's not it's hard to say um so your mental desire to meet your friend for dinner for example caused your physical body to go to the restaurant at the right time. And this was uh, maybe what you would call interactionism. So mind and body interact, although they're different kinds of things, but there was also a parallelist version of this, or maybe a epiphenomenalist version of this, in which your mind desired to meet your friend and your body uh, went to see your friend, but there was not a direct causal connection between the two. So anyway, this was one of the major ways that mind was thought of during the Enlightenment. It's kind of become common sense in a way, um, or I think in just like general, generally, I think that's how our the kind of um, theory of mind that our language emphasizes that there's a kind of a, that mind is kind of a separate thing in its own world, and somehow it uh, affects our bodies, but we don't really think too much about how that happens. Um, 
So this was kind of the major way, one of the major ways anyways, that mind was thought about during the Enlightenment and was maintained in some of the major 19th century psychologies. Uh, but anyway, this way of thinking about mind and behavior and whether they're connected or not uh, proved, provided the basic problem or the set of problems that was uh, grappled with by what um, came to be called behaviorism. And the problem had four parts, as far as I can tell. Um, this is how I'm thinking about it so far, that there was these four parts of the problem. And maybe there were more, maybe there were, well, probably not less. I think there was at least these four parts of the problem. So the problem of uh, mental substance was one of them. The problem of mental substance and uh, the problem of mental causation. I've already touched on both of those. The problem, then the problem of introspection uh which i've also briefly referred to and the problem of mental language so words about mind words relating to mind so you had these four things that were problems mental substance mental causation mental language and then the uh, intro activity of introspection so the problem of substance was a problem because it wasn't clear how in principle a mental substance could be scientifically observable so we can um, observe scientific, you know, according to the model of science, standard model of science, we can observe the physical world, but if mind is not physical, then what can we, how can we know about it? This was a problem. Uh, the problem of mental causation was a problem because it wasn't clear how a non-mental, sorry, non-material, it wasn't clear how a non-material substance could affect a material world. And if it didn't affect the material world, then, you know, what was, what was its purpose? Uh, the problem of introspection was a problem because one person's introspection of their own mind could not be confirmed or disconfirmed by another person. Right? If I say I have a desire for this, if I say I have a belief about that, um, if I say I have a sensation of this, um, you kind of have to take me on my word, ultimately. Right? If there's no, if you're, if the connection between mind and body is not clear then um, you're kind of barred from making any uh, definite conclusions based on, based on my behavior or on my, the state of my body. So if mind is a separate thing, if mind is private, if mind is invisible to uh, other people, then you have to kind of take my word on what I say about my own mind. We, so you're, there's no process of uh, verification or refutation about that that can be applied there. Uh, and then the problem of mental language was a problem because if we reject the traditional concept of mind, then uh, what are mind words for? What are we doing when we use words like mind or consciousness or think or want or desire or believe? What do these words apply to then if there's no separate thing that is mind? Uh, so yeah, what are ordinary people doing when they talk about minds and what should psychologists do with these words? If we've got these words, what are we supposed to do with them if we don't uh, no longer believe in this traditional concept of mind? Uh, so this is what I might call Enlightenment psychology's bequest of incoherence, to borrow a phrase from Morris Peckham. This was their bequest of incoherence to psychologists of the 19th and 20th centuries. We had these ideas that didn't really seem to make sense when you put them in a scientific context. Uh, so behaviorism was a response to this incoherence, this incoherence of kind of pre-scientific uh, pre psychology. 
And behaviorism involved would involve uh, jettisoning, you know, getting rid of or radically reconstructing the assumptions behind these four problems that I've mentioned, the four problems of mental substance, mental causation, introspection, and mental language. So when we talk about any particular behaviorist, I think, when we want to consider how they uh, dealt with these four problems, or we want to consider how they deal with these four problems. So when you're looking at a particular behaviorist, you can ask yourself, how do they deal with these four different problems? If they do, I think not every behaviorist deals with every problem. Um, and there's kind of a difference between behaviorists who are more philosophical and more some who are more experimental and that affected uh, how, they, how much they dealt with these four problems. Um, and though some problems were more important to other, some behaviors than to others and so on. But you, this gives you a basic way to look at uh, different behaviorists and kind of um, judge their differences, their distinctions, the differences in their theories. Um, but I'm not going to try to do this right now because that would be a lot of work. Uh, but for now, I just want to make a few observations about, you know, generally about how these problems were dealt with. So let's take the problem of mental substance first. So pretty much uh, everyone who has been called a behaviorist was a monist. So they believed in one kind of thing and they were generally physicalists or materialists. This is not universally true. Um, there's kind of an interesting pluralism among some behaviorists, but basically they rejected dualism. They rejected mind-body dualism is the maybe the key thing. And ge But generally they were drawn towards a kind of monism, materialism, or physicalism, however you want to talk about it. So they thought there was some fundamental, non-mental kind of stuff in the universe and everything else was made out of that. So the way I would maybe put it is that whatever the fundamental units of the universe turn out to be, um, maybe strings or whatever, whatever the smallest kind of thing is, if that's even the right way to think about it, um, these will not likely turn out to be conscious or have experience as we know it. Uh, so rather, I think for behaviorists in general, experience becomes possible only in certain kinds of physical systems. Uh, only when matter, whatever that turns out to be, gets organized in a certain way, can you speak only when this happens can you speak of consciousness in like any sense that's really meaningful or experience or whatever uh, term you might prefer to use uh, okay so that's the problem of mental substance how about the problem of mental causation so the classical question was how does the mind relate to the world this was um, an old question so we've got the mind, we've got the world, they seem to be separate kinds of things. How do they relate to each other? In behaviorism, this was uh, reconstructed as how does the organism adjust to the environment? So you don't really have mind and world anymore. That seems not the best way to think about it. You've got organism and you've got environment, or you've got kind of the organismic system and you've got the systems outside of that and surrounding that system, the larger systems of which that organism is a part and so on. And the organism has to be in interaction or transaction, whichever you prefer with those other systems. So questions about knowledge and belief and sensation and, and sensation and so on were uh, reconceived on this basis. So the problem about whether non-material substances can interact with material substances, this problem disappears. And instead you have um, kind of a universe of physical things 
uh, or physical systems interacting with and changing each other. So some of these acts and changes on the side of the organism can be called knowledge or can be called sensation or perception or whatever. Um, and the changes within the, but these changes within the organism are important parts of the organism's behavior. Um, but they're not more important than the environment, which stimulates the organism both before and after it acts. So you've got these two things which are equally important, the organism and the environment, and they're in constant interaction with each other. The organism changes, and some of these changes we could call different things, like knowledge, whatever, thought, imagination, and so on. Uh, so that was uh, mental causation. And then we have the third problem, the problem of introspection. So introspection as traditionally practiced by philosophers and then by um, certain psych uh, psychologists and groups of psychologists, like maybe the American structuralists and the German Würzburg school. Um, introspection of this kind, the behaviorist thought had no place in a scientific psychology. So it either had to be jettisoned entirely, which was the position of John Watson, or it had to be reconstructed in such a way that, um, as to make it properly public. And um, there was other kind of uh, trends in German thought that also uh, previously, uh, previous to this, that tried to make introspection scientific. This is Wilhelm Wundt. And then people reacted against him and it became kind of less scientific maybe. And uh, so the behaviorists were either saying, let's get rid of it or let's make it scientific. And um, this was the more the position of, so uh, Watson wanted to just get rid of it and some other behaviorists, uh, Grace de Laguna wanted to keep it or at least argued that there was a way to make it scientific. I won't get into all the details of that. Uh, but generally it came to be understood that introspection, at least as uh, traditionally practiced, did not yield reliable data. Uh, reliable data. Introspection was uh, well, for example, introspection was something that was learned and which therefore relied on uh, cultural categories. You know, we're not born with some fundamental and infallible knowledge of our own inner states, however you want to conceive of these inner states. But actually, we learn from other people how to find out about our own inner, inner states. And so it's more... Um, you know, our uh, introspection is more a cultural matter that, rather than something that per se is uh, scientifically valid. Maybe there's a way to make it scientifically valid, but um, it has to be done. Uh, it would have to be uh, done in a careful way. Anyway, uh, last problem, problem of mental language or mind words. Our last, our fourth problem. There were two basic approaches to mind words. Um, so... I would maybe call these the ideal language approach and the ordinary language approach. And I'm taking these kind of from a uh, philosophy of language where you have uh, ideal language philosophers and ordinary language philosophers. But I think a similar kind of uh, thing happened among behaviorists and actually the, the, philosophical, the philosophical version is related to the behavior version, but um, focusing on behaviorism. So in the ideal language approach, right? Ideal language. Um, in this approach, mind words, mental words, mental language was translated into behavioral terms. It was translated into a way that made it observable. So, for example, thought, to take one example, was understood as subvocal speech behavior. That's something now that we can observe. So your 
taking a word from common language and you're kind of idealizing or making it um, a more technical word in uh, a scientific psychology or behavioristic psychology. Um, but there were some cases where this could not really be consistently translated. If maybe the word had too many meanings or there was too many disagreements with among behaviorists about how to use a word. So in some cases, it was best to just you know get rid of a word. And this was uh, kind of Watson's famous, um, one of the things Watson is famous for because he didn't use mind or consciousness as technical terms. He thought we should you know not use words like that for um for that reason they just had too many meanings there was no accepted meaning um and it was just too it wasn't worth trying to translate it into behavioral terms uh, others took a different path so singer um ea singer who i've written a lot about and uh, bf skinner who i've also written a little bit about and uh, talked about um, they sometimes used consciousness in a technical sense to mean the observation or perception that you or someone else was having a perception or a thought, uh, something like that. So that's a little bit related to um, like higher order theories of consciousness um, and of perceiving that someone is having a perception or perceiving that you're having a perception or reporting that you're having a perception or something could be what we mean by consciousness. This, of course gets uh, controversial because just because the word consciousness has so many different meanings and people have kind of their own favorite meanings. Um, but that was another path. But um, all behaviorists, it has to be said, including Watson, retained some traditional mind words, um, you know, translated behaviorally, just because um, they need words and they can't invent uh, totally new words for everything or no one will understand what they're writing, right? You can't uh, totally dispense with traditional language. Uh, or no one will be able to understand you. Um, so they did retain, they did have, I think, have to retain some uh, mind words, but generally these were translated in a behavior-oriented way, behavior-like way. So that, uh, so the, the ideal language approach, then you also have the um, ordinary language approach to uh, mental words. Um, and uh, I should say, uh, first, that these are not, this is not an either-or situation. You don't really need to choose ideal language or ordinary language. They're doing different things. So people often use both. Morse Peckham, you find using both approaches and um, uh, lots of other people as well. Anyway, in the ordinary language approach, you're looking at how mental words are used in daily life and what functions they have, right? What functions do they have in our lives? Uh, so these words were generally found to refer to behaviors or to likely behaviors. When you look at how people actually use words and why they use words, certain mind words when they do, it's because of behaviors that they're observing. So to say, for example, that someone has a great mind just means that they were able to do certain things with maybe unusual intelligence or unusual creativity. Uh, to say that someone is angry just means that they're likely to say or do certain things. You can see certain actions of theirs, um, facial expressions and so on. Maybe they're more likely to yell at you if you approach them and things like that. So it's about behaviors. Uh, to say that I believe, to take another mind word, to say that I believe that, say, the White House is in Washington, D.C., uh, just means that if I want to see the White House, I will go to Washington, D.C., and if I you know, say that I want to see the White House, it just means I'll probably uh, try to see it and we'll make plans to see it. 
Uh, and the ultimate reasons for this, for why I want this rather than something else, is going to be found by looking at my environmental history, uh, maybe my genetics and stuff like that. So anyway, these were the four problems that behaviorists were trying to resolve through focusing on behavior. Right? Again, those were the problems of mental substance, the problem of mental causation, uh, the problem of introspection, and the problem of mental language. Uh, behaviorists uh, resolved these problems in different ways, and this resulted in different kinds of behaviorism. So I think the problem of causation especially led to the most dif uh, more differences, maybe the most differences. So if mind did not cause behavior, this is like a common sense thing that we think and then we act. But if the mind did not cause behavior, then what did cause organisms to act in the way that they did? Uh, and the effort, the effort, the endeavor to give a detailed answer to this question of how behavior um, is caused led to sometimes strikingly different kinds of behaviorism. But I don't want to go into all of these tale, all of those details uh, right now. I just wanted to explore what I think are the basic problems behaviorists were responding to. And that's really all I wanted to say for today. So thanks for uh, listening. And have a good one.